Galatians chapter 1. We're going to start our reading again this morning in the third verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory." Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you as we are gathered here this morning to open up your word and, and, and beg you and petition to before you, Lord, that you will feed us from your word. Lord, I pray that you'll give me the words to speak, Lord. I pray that you'll give me the same excitement as the very day you unveiled these truths to me, even this very moment. We give thanks to you, Lord, and praise you for all that you've done thus far, Lord. I praise you and exalt you, Lord, for what you've done in my life, that I may even stand before your people in this day, in this hour, Lord, to have a time of appreciation for even to be a pastor in one of your churches, of which I'm so unworthy. But to your glory, Lord, you've given me this opportunity. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. We praise you and lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing on with this exposition on this epistle to the Ephesians. We have step by step can begin to work through these verses and our theme has started with God. Where is where our faith must start with God. I mean, all of it starts with God. Even that beloved text of John 3.16, it starts off with what? For God so loved the world. In the second verse of the fourth chapter of Ephesians, what does it say? But God. And so we also must start with God. 
And that Paul has done in this text of Ephesians 1. At the close of last week, at the ending, we looked at this glorious salvation that has placed us in the beloved. It has placed us into a place where we are loved by God. But Paul in this Continual doxology, verses 3 through 14, 202 words of continual praise unto God. He doesn't stop there. He says, yes, we are now in the beloved, but there is even more. We have been brought to something or been brought to someone this morning, which has been a, con a continual connection point through these first six verses. But this morning, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 7 has brought us to this new thought, this person of our redemption, in whom we have redemption through his blood. In whom? And this is what Paul first brings us to in verse number 7. In whom? This is the connection to what we've closed in last week in verse number 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. This in whom is those who are in connected to the beloved. In whom is in Christ. Christ is the beloved and it is through Christ and in Christ, that we are brought in to the beloved. He again is the person that is being referred to in whom we have redemption. I guess we must ask ourselves something this morning. What is the purpose that Paul keeps bringing us here? Why do we keep arriving back here? Why? Is the Holy Spirit led Paul to lead us back again to Christ? In whom? And do we take this text and just continue on with our normal cadence? Or do we believe what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 16? That every word of God is profitable. Do we chalk it up to redundancy? I mean, we've already seen eight times in the first six verses, Paul has drawn all eyes and hearts back to Christ. Is this redundancy? Is this just to continue on with the cadence of our reading that we just say, of course, it is in Christ, of course, it is through Christ? Do we say that Paul is like us? That when we get so overwhelmed and so excited that we find ourselves repetitiously repeating ourselves. No, we can't. He is being led by the Spirit. It means that what we see here, if we pass over it as the fact that we completely just understand what Paul is saying is that we may fall short of missing what the Holy Spirit is trying to unveil to us in this verse. In whom? In whom we have redemption through His blood. If we were to say it differently, we would say, in Christ we have redemption. 
he is further emphasizing something to us here. It does not matter your moral living. It doesn't matter your religious standing. It doesn't matter your works. It doesn't matter your family. Apart from Christ, there is no redemption. Period. No saving faith apart from Christ. There's no such thing as Christianity apart from Christ. No hope apart from Christ. No help apart from Christ. No redemption in this fallen nature apart from Christ in Him in whom we have redemption through His blood. So then why is this here? We would say to ourselves, no, I disagree. Paul is being redundant. He again here is bringing us back to Christ. Some would even say the back and forth between God and Christ in these first uh, 3 through 14 is only bringing more confusion. No, it is confusion because Paul is trying to proclaim clarity to the understanding of our salvation. It is if you read these verses 3 through 14 and you see in whom but God through the Spirit sealed. And we say, I'm so confused. That is exactly why Paul has laid it all out. So that we can dive deeper into understanding this great salvation. We would say that in whom we have redemption. Paul, we understand that we have already Understand that salvation is God's work, that what has been done, that we've been chosen in Him, that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, that God has already opened the vault of heaven and laid out for Danny Hall before the foundations of the world every blessing that would one day come down the pike for me. They've already been blessed. All blessings have been blessed in heavenly places. So the question is now, we see that the salvation is here. The blessings are here. Now why do we come to this redemption? Well, as we know that we cannot enjoy spiritual blessings until we are spiritual. We cannot enjoy the new last name until we first have the last name. You've been chosen by God, but how do you get to God? This is the explanation of verse number seven. In whom we have redemption through his blood. God has great blessings for us. God has chosen us, and all of these things are from God. But how do they finally convey down to us? We must first, in order before we can stand before God, and before we can enjoy the spiritual blessings, before we can praise this great salvation, we must first be delivered from the old man. We must first be delivered from the bondage of sin, where we have been bound in the endemic fall to the old life, to the old man, bound to sin, cursed by Adam. So, how then, you could say, verse number 7 is a roadmap back to verse 1. How do we get to experience blessings in heavenly places? How do we get to have all of these things? Paul says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. How does 
carnal man be made right with God through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is how the connection point is made. We understand we are adopted through Christ. We have been placed in the beloved in Christ. Now the question is, how do we get in Christ? Through redemption in his blood, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And this redemption word means to be, to for us in the spiritual sense, is to be released from the bonds of sin by and payment, effected by the payment of a ransom. It is liberation that is procured by the payment of a ransom in whom we have redemption. We, some of us today, I may be forced to today, to watch sports. When we watch football and we see someone make a terrible play, the first thing out of our mouth is, they've ruined it. Then in the very next play, they make a touchdown, and the next thing out of our mouth is, they've redeemed themselves. They've came back. They've made up for all their mistakes. That is maybe how we use the word today, but that is not the context in which it is being offered up to us this morning. This thought of redemption, this context of redemption, it is speaking with the thought of slavery. It is speaking with the thought of captivity. A slave could never redeem himself. Someone had to arrive on the scene and pay the price to bring the slave out of bondage. They had to pay the necessary price. So Paul says, in your bondage, in your slavery to sin, Christ redeemed you. It says he paid the price. So Paul, in the further wanting to explain to us that it is through Christ and in Christ that we have redemption. Okay, so Christ is how we have redemption. But what was this great payment that brought me out of fallen humanity? He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. It was his blood. I guess at times we find ourselves pondering and wondering why Christ's life? Why his life? Why Christ? How is it that his life had to be given for us to be redeemed? It was the highest price that could be paid. The cost of our salvation was astronomical, far beyond our understanding. That is what causes us to wonder why Christ, why his blood, why this ultimate sacrifice. It is all because we fail to completely, fully understand our condition in fallen humanity. If we was to try to take this, this great freedom that we have and try to explain it in 
so to say, human terms, I guess that we could open up our calculators or take a piece of paper and try to approach this great salvation with a mathematical equation. If you was to take this mathematical equation, you could write out on a piece of paper the largest number that you could think of, the largest, then double it, then times it by a 100. Then multiply it by a million, a billion, or maybe multiply it by our nation's debt, 14 trillion, and keep going with it. And you'll arrive, you'll say, no matter how many pages you go, whether you double it by 10 or a thousand or a million, all you have done, you know what you have done? You've taken the largest number that you have ever heard of, ever thought of, multiplied it, and still ended up with a finite number. This number has a beginning. And this number has an end. No matter how many pages it fills, it is still finite. And so it is. No matter what we do, it is still finite. We still have remained finite. By adding two finite things together, you have never created anything that is infinite. So this is our trouble. This is why this is exciting. Because to this problem, this finite creature, God, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was manifested in flesh, divine in humanity, and infinite in life. And this was the agent that acted with finite humanity. Do you see the exchange here? There is nothing in this finite life that can redeem us. Yet Christ came who is infinite and through faith in him and the shedding of his blood, we have become infinite in our existence, meaning that we will be with him. The cost is incomprehensible. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19 says, for as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. You see that. For as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions of your fathers. If you were to have a, a bar of gold, a pound of gold today, it would cost you about $30,000. If you had a dump truck full of those gold bars today, Peter and even Paul in Ephesians here are saying it wasn't enough to redeem you from the condition that you were in. It doesn't matter whether your dump truck's full. It's all worthless at, con at your conversion. It's finite. I know what the conversation of your father says, Peter says, but it's not enough to redeem you from the bondage of sin. But he goes on to say, we have been redeemed, but it was with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There it is. The blood of the infinite given for the finite in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. I see, I hope you see something. What I found to be the utmost exciting as I read verse number seven up to the first comma, 
in whom we have redemption through his blood. Maybe even more, back it up. In whom we have redemption. Just this little phrase alone, just this little sentence alone should, should have you so filled with joy. It should have your eyes wet. It should have you ready to come out of the pew. Just one word there. Do you see it? Do you see this? In whom we have redemption. Last night I told Caleb to go out to his Jeep and undo the trailer so that we could go get something to eat. He came back in the house holding his keys and said he couldn't undo his trailer because the trailer was locked to the Jeep. He was unable to remove the, 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 the car's burden until he had the key. Yet he was hungry. Yet he wanted food, but he did not possess the key. I gave him the key. After I gave him the key, you know what he did not do? He didn't walk around the house looking for a way to unlock the burden. He didn't look no more in the house. He had it. He possessed what it took to get the trailer off the car. This is what this says here. In whom we have redemption. In whom we have redemption. You see that? Have. We have it. We, we have redemption. It is in our possession. We are not looking for it. We are not wondering around, how, wondering around, wondering how we're going to be redeemed, how we're going to be released from the bondage, what we're going to do to continue to keep it. We have it. In whom we have redemption. This brings the greatest joy to my life because I know I possess the key to be redeemed and he also possesses me. But the problem is that this is one of the greatest robberies in the Christian life. It is. We get saved, but yet people live as if they have not been redeemed. Satan lays at their feet and hangs about the neck the sins of their past life, robbing them of their joy, robbing them of their love, making them miserable Christians, causing them to continue to search another way to find resolve, to find relief. But what he says here, we have redemption. For those who are in Christ, we have been redeemed. We have found relief. We no longer are under the bondage of it. We have forgiveness of sins. That is what he says. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Satan may say to us, well, look at your past. Well, I have the key. I have it. I have redemption. It is in my possession. Well, look how you failed your children. Well, I have redemption. I have the key, which means I too have forgiveness of sins. Look how you failed your spouse. I have the key. It is within my possession. I have been redeemed. Even forgiveness of sins, Satan says about us, you are a continual ongoing mistake and failure against God. Yes, I am indeed, but I have 
have the key. I have redemption through Christ, which is the continual forgiveness of my sins. Not only the past, not only the present, but in the future. I have this and it is mine. Why would we ever let Satan convince us to wear old garments? Why would we ever let him to convince us to wear old burdens? At last, we can cling to these words. We have been redeemed in whom we have redemption. Remember, Paul is talking to saved believers. He's writing to people who have already been saved, giving them the great assurance. In Christ, we have this grand redemption. It is not in whom we hope to get. It is not in whom we will one day get. It is not whom we will one day have if we continue to beg for it. It is in whom we have, this is possessed, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. Now we see that Paul is saying this through his blood. Notice what he does not say. He does not just say through Christ's death. It's more. Through his blood, we have found redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This takes our mind back to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, where we see that in Leviticus chapter 16, the priest would offer up the sin sacrifice. We've talked about this before. They would bring in the two goats unto the priest, and there there would be a sacrifice offered up there, and the sacrifice would be put upon the altar, but it was more than just being sacrificed on the altar. The blood of the sacrifice would then be taken and put on the mercy seat, and there on the mercy seat it would abate and ease the wrath of God upon the people of Israel. And even in the continual of this, in Leviticus chapter 16, we see this sin sacrifice contained two goats. It was not only the goat that would be offered up upon the altar, but it would be the second goat in which they would bring before Aaron, and Aaron would lay his hands upon the head of the goat, and then upon the head of the goat, he would confess the sins of Israel, their trespasses, and all their mistakes. And the Bible says that they would put that goat in the hands of a fit man who would take that goat out into an uninhabited land, never to be seen again. It was said that as this goat would be taken off, that as it would cross over the hill, that Israel would shout out, there goes our sin. There goes our sin. As their sin would be taken from their very presence to this uninhabited land. Hear me. They would never see the goat again. That was God's promise to them that forgiveness had arrived, that they would never see that goat again. That goat bears your sin. And here we are in Ephesians. This sacrifice points out that he redeems us and he forgives us. And not only does he forgive, but even the sacrifice that Leviticus chapter 16 was pointing to the one day coming of Christ, that not only would Christ be the sacrifice for our sins, but he would also be the scapegoat. That in this 
book here of Ephesians chapter 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The, Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is not just the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. Luke 24 and verse 22, the Lord said, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. He goes on in Hebrews 9 and verse 12 and says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, and having obtained eternal redemption for us, Christ died once and entered into the holy place and sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat. And there forever Christ's wrath has been appeased against fallen men who come to Christ. I'm not going to labor this point, but it's sufficient to say that this sacrifice, we do not have enough time to speak of. But I want to draw our eyes just in closing here to what is said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I feel much like the children of Israel this morning. I was not there the day that they led that goat into the wilderness and Israel cried out, there goes our sin. But as I thought about what the old hymn writer says, as I surveyed the old rugged cross, I began in my own heart to cry and weep and say, every time I think of Calvary's hill, I cry, there goes my sin. There it goes. Gone from me. As far as the east is from the west, never to be hung about my neck again, never to be worn down in, the, in this flesh, never to cause to be a burden upon me. Yet Satan continues to say, put it on, put it on, wear it. Yet he says here that we have been redeemed from our sins in Christ. We must never leave here this morning like Judas bothered by our sin, convicted by our sin, upset by our sin, weeping by our sin, confessing our sin, sorry for ever committing sin. Listen, Judas did all of those things, did he not? But he never truly came to this great news of verse number seven, that in whom we have forgiveness... There is the grand difference. The Bible would say that Judas would confess his sin, that he would even try to make restitution for his sin. He took the 30 pieces of silver back and laid it before the priest. Then he went out and hung himself because he never believed that Christ could forgive his sins. That he could never forgive someone who betrayed him. Yet, if he stayed a while around a little while longer, he would have seen how God would mightily use Peter, who betrayed him also. You see, the thing that makes us different than this world is that we can say, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have been forgiven. Forgiven. 
Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, brother, and I count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. One thing. This is the one thing Paul says. The murderer who got changed. The persecutor who got changed. If anybody had any kind of past, it was Paul. Paul said, this one thing I do, and it's helped me to live a successful Christian life. Because Satan tries to cast burden upon Paul, just like all of us. I know who you once were. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into the things which are before I press towards the mark. Paul said, I have to forget those things which are behind. That's the only problem. I've been forgiven, but I'm not forgetting. Some say, Pastor, friend, brother, I understand what you're saying. Doesn't your past bother you? Yes, when I let my mind wander outside of Christ. But as long as I positionally continue to remind myself that I am in Christ, my problems in my past cannot even find me. They can't even locate me because they have been forgiven in Christ. Don't leave your here this morning burdened by sin. Don't leave here burdened by your past. This text makes it clear that if we will just repent of our sins and place our faith in him, he will take your sin to a place that is uninhabitable and unable for us to go to a hill called Calvary. And there on Calvary, he will take the sin of us and put it upon Christ some 2,000 years ago. And his righteousness will be imputed upon us. Oh, that cross we should shout when we look upon it. There goes my sin. There it goes. That is where our sin is supposed to stay. To carry the burden of our sin is to lessen the value of what Christ did on the cross. The guilt, the shame, and the pain of our wicked past should be left on Calvary's heel. If you truly believe that, then you can understand why verse number 7 is a part of Paul's doxology. Why verse number 7 is a part of Paul's praise to God. He's praising God because it's gone. No longer the burden. No longer the guilt, no longer the shame. He is in Christ. I have been redeemed from the mistakes of not only my past, the redeemed, I've been redeemed from the mistakes of my present and redeemed from the mistakes of my future because I continuously remain in Christ. What richness of his word in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Who but God? What, this, what is this glorious thought? What is this glorious praise? May we leave here this morning saying this phrase over and over and over again to ourselves when Satan tries to weigh down on us our past, when he tries to weigh down us our mistakes, we can just look to him and say, in whom we have redemption, <laughs> forgiveness of sins through his blood. Forgiven. Forgiven. 
I think it was D.L. Moody said the problem with modern day Christianity is that we try to make Christ's love like our love, Christ's forgiveness like our forgiveness. We say we forgive you, but we leave the axe handle hanging out for further use. That is not his love. Forgiveness is gone, buried, no longer to be seen, no more. We have been forgiven. If you are convicted by your past ever, Know this, it is not of God. If you look in the mirror and say, I'm a terrible, this terrible, no, you are in Christ. You have been made anew. It will weigh you down and make you feel like Christ's love on Calvary did nothing for you, but it did something grand. So he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, listen, the forgiveness of sins. We're forgiven. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the depths of this epistle. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to feed us from your word. Continue to open our eyes that, that there's so much that happened in this great salvation that we've not only been brought to this place, but we've been lifted from the place that we once were and now in you, beloved by you, in the family, loved by God. Who could have ever thought this? We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.